sport needs to do more and to accept its broader social responsibility. It can't just exist within its narrow boundaries and refuse to get involved in issues that affect a broader society. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Craig Foster is a former Socceroo captain, sports commentator for SBS and passionate advocate for multiculturalism. During his career, he's played at the elite level in Hong Kong, England and Australia, but also suffered injuries and setbacks. In 2018-19, he was instrumental in winning the release of Bahraini footballer Hakim Al-Arabi from, an, from a Thai prison. And when coronavirus hit Australia this year, Craig established an organisation called Play for Lives to mobilise sports people to volunteer in their communities. Foz, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me. No, no, it's nice to join you. So why football? What got you into it as a, as, as a kid? Well, I was up in Lismore, northern New South Wales, which is a beautiful country area, which, of course, these days uh, is all hobby farms and people going up to Byron and Nimbin and Balna, one of the most beautiful areas of the country. And in those days, it's very similar to today in that in regional areas, football is incredibly strong. Uh, it's incredibly large. It's the most numerous game, uh, as it's almost always been. And so it was very natural in a country area to be playing football. Uh, you know, uh, even back then, whilst it was largely invisible, that is to say that rugby league and cricket, for instance, dominated the local media landscape and had much more political influence and power, football had the most players. So like most people in the, in the country at that time and still today, you know, I took up the game very young, as did my uh, two brothers, and we came to love, enjoy it and spend a life in it. You uh, you played played as a midfielder through most of your career. Did you start as a in the mids? I started just running everywhere, <laughs> like every. <laughs> I was probably the worst. My mother says that I just used to chase the ball, which is probably a good metaphor for my life in many ways, and uh, and secondly that I just used to boss, you know, the other kids around, saying go here and go there, and and trying to organise things, and probably very little's changed there as well. So I just gravitated naturally to the midfield because that is the controlling aspect, right? You know, I loved being in the centre of the team. I loved, you know, being able to help people at the back, um, organise, uh, you know, this whole um, kind of ecosystem around you. Um, you were very much an important a cog in the team, which I always liked, you know, to take responsibility. I always felt... Um, you know, really comfortable there. Uh, and so, you know, if your midfield didn't work or if your central midfielder didn't play well, you know, they come straight through the middle at you, you're always in trouble. So all of those elements, um, I think, meant that naturally I, I gravitated towards that central area of the team. Were you an easygoing player as a kid or did you, uh, did you bear the losses uh, quite heavily? Mm, that's a good question, actually. Um, I think at times I... 
was probably hard on you know my teammates I you know like all well like the vast majority of athletes who get to the top level you know I was uh, ultra competitive and you know and you are, are over time learn how to get the best out of everyone around you rather than I think probably 10 11 12 years old it's just a sense of getting frustrated because the game was so important to me you know I was spending considerable amount of time training you know and of course you know my teammates didn't take it uh, with the same level of gravity so but over time you start to realize that well actually um, you need to uh, energize people you need to you know bring them along uh, and um, you know and bring the best out of them so that that quickly goes from you know frustration to encouragement and um, but I always, you know, was really serious about competing. I had two brothers, one elder and one younger as well. And, you know, multiple sibling families, particularly like that, you know, three boys all playing sport tends to be hyper competitive atmosphere. And what did your parents do as, as uh, parents of a, of a budding sports, sports person? Um, I know there was a, a lot of driving, driving involved. Uh, and I'm curious too, you know, how that's shaped you. You're the, you're the father now of a pretty successful triathlete. Uh, what, are, what, what should parents do in order to uh, foster the uh, success of their kids, as it were? Uh, just love them unconditionally is the first thing and we had that as children um, my parents as you say particularly my father well both of them of course my mother would be at home trying to hold everything together while my father would ferry us all around the state uh, three of us at uh, at different times um, to play in representative teams you know the uh, northern New South Wales teams as it was at that time so the level that they would go to, the level of commitment to their children was a great lesson to me. And, you know, that becomes more and more difficult, I think, for parents today because not everyone has the luxury to be able to spend a tremendous amount of time with their children. Um, perhaps COVID has made a lot of us, you know, reflect on why that is and why, why that should be. I've always made sacrifices where I could for my children uh, and made sure that as far as I could um, they've always been first in in every respect. Do you uh, train quite a, quite a bit with your kids now? Mm. Not really, no I'm a bit old now <laughs> and so I, I try to exercise as little as possible actually as funny as that is. People often say oh gee you know you look fit you, what are you doing you know you must be in the gym. I say look that's the last place that I want to be after spending, <laughs> you know, some athletes just go on, you know, some athletes, I guess, just love the physical aspect of it. And therefore, for their lifetime, uh, they just want to be fit. You know, that wasn't me. I loved the competition. I loved the winning and losing. I, I certainly loved the team aspect. And I just loved playing the game. It wasn't that I loved running, necessarily. And we had 15 years of being paid to do so to a really almost extreme degree. And these days I look at it and go, well, you know what, if I'm not getting paid to go run, I'm not getting out of a walk. <laughs> you don't, you don't uh, play uh, for any uh, local team? You're not in the veterans leagues? No, I do now. Uh, I didn't for, well, almost the last decade because of commitments at SBS. But after leaving SBS recently, I've taken the chance to go back at 51 years of age to the over 35s. So I'm the old guy of the team. 
we play here in eastern suburbs and look I'm really thoroughly enjoying that but once again training to me is about just being with the guys uh, and enjoying playing with the ball just enjoying the the features of the game that I always loved it's not about being fit um, and and the other thing is I think as a former athlete um, you know we always viewed our food as an import in the whole process of getting to you know elite athletics or elite professional sport and therefore I like to control my food and I don't feel as though I need to exercise in order to for instance you know uh, maintain a certain weight or any of these things so I'm perfectly happy to go uh, with just um, you know doing um, just playing for fun yeah so back to uh, you as a kid, uh, you're 1985, you're uh, playing in the Under-16 World Championship in China, uh, you've got a scholarship at the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, you've got calls coming in from, uh, from Bayern Munich, uh, you've got the world at your feet. Uh, what could go wrong, right? Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's life, isn't it? That's the age-old question. Yeah, it was... Um... I, I came back to Lismore and, in fact, we, they had a whole civic reception after I'd made the team of that tournament of the under six, the first ever Under-16 World Cup. And that was really special for the people in the local area. I mean, the football community, of course, were hugely excited. And they said, can you just stay and play one more game and, you know, the whole town will come out and celebrate and then you can go off to the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, you know, the, the highest level of elite youth program in the country and then off you go, play Socceroos and international football. And I said, yeah, that'd be a wonderful idea. And of course, when I went into that game, I, you know, as life would sometimes have it, I uh, received a tackle that uh, snapped the cruciate ligaments in my right knee. That was 1985 when that uh, surgery back then, so long ago, was very different, as you'd imagine, to what it is today. So it took a long, long time to come back. How did you cope as a as a kid with uh, an injury of that magnitude? Um, you know, I think perhaps sports people, but certainly I was always very optimistic and remain so today. Um, I don't know, you know, if you can really survive at high level professional sport if you don't have a a good dose of. Uh, you know, just getting up every day and, and being grateful for what you've got and being driven to achieve something, but always having optimism at the front of your mind. Um, so I, I, I think I dealt with it very well. The problem was when I was coming back from the injury and the le- level of time that it took to get back playing again. That was difficult. Uh, but I never felt as though it wasn't going to happen. I just uh, focused on what that task was, which was to become as fit as possible as soon as possible. As it happened, it it kind of disrupted my career so that rather than 17 going on then into the under-20s and then into the Socceroos by early 20s, uh, it took me until the age of 26 to be able to play for the country. It's a huge gap between that uh, those two moments in which you represented your country on the field. What did you have to do in order to finally make the uh, the soccer Socceroos team because you were uh, you were playing in uh, in in Hong Kong for a, per- a period weren't you before that yeah I ended up in Asia as many players did here at that time um, it was part-time football the the National Soccer League and so typically 
in those days you would go abroad to Europe once you'd become a socceroo already and I hadn't done so by my early 20s. It was also only about six months of the year, the National Soccer League, as much as we loved it. It was only part-time and part-year. And so many of us started to go across to Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, to um, be able to play for the remainder of the year and essentially um, spend uh, all of our time as full-time players that was attractive to me because um, I thought that you know I could continue to grow and get back to my best, or what I considered that, and go on and play for the Socceroos. I spent a few years there, it was a wonderful time, and of course the older you get, the more you appreciate having spent time in Asia and how important that is in terms of multiculturalism and, and uh, cultural nuance and, and um, uh, competence. Uh, nevertheless, um, I was in Hong Kong and I just decided one day, look, I had a good a, a decision to make. You know, was I going to continue to play and benefit financially, and you know, uh, become you know relatively well off? I came from a working class family, and then, uh, but not play for the country, or you know, what was what was it really that I was playing for? That was the question that I had to face. And every athlete at some point, and probably every person in their life has to face that question at some point. So what, you, what made you move back, uh, not to one of the teams you'd played for beforehand, but to Adelaide City? I decided that I wanted to play for Socceroos, whatever that took, and so I gave up a very lucrative career in Asia to come back to Australia and play for the team that was then champions, Adelaide City. And that was my reasoning. I thought, well, if I'm going to play for Australia, I need to get there as quickly as possible. I'm 24, nearly 25 already, and I, if I can play for the top team in the country, then I will automatically be there or be very close. Adelaide City had just won the 94 title, and they had at least five, six uh, internationals at the time, legends of the game, Milan Ivanovic, Alex Tobin, Damian Mori, um, Joey Mullen. It was a fabulous team. Uh, I didn't know most of them, but I just called the coach who remembered me from years before and I said, yeah, I want to come down and play for you. And I ended up doing that. That you know, There was a tremendous amount of financial cost to doing so, but to me it was really a very straightforward decision. That is to just try to excel to the very highest level uh, in my profession as it was at the time. And I've made the same decision many, many times hence. It wasn't just the financial costs too. I mean, you uh, sustained some pretty serious injuries during that uh, that first season with Adelaide City, didn't you? How did you find you, you coped with those? I had some hurdles to get to where I wanted, like anyone in life. Um, you know, some of us seem to have, well, some people have more than others, and as many people have more than me. They start from a, a position um, without the gifts that I was given, and I'm talking about family, I'm talking about, you know, a, a safe upbringing, um, you know, even a house, um, you know, these types of things. So I had a lot of advantages. Uh, at the same time, I did seem to be stricken with injury quite a lot as a player. And I came back having made this big decision, went to Adelaide City and reasonably promptly I broke my foot and went through well over a year of not playing. I actually came back twice, broke it again twice and I ended up having to put a screw in the foot and the club just said to me, look, you're, you're too keen, you know, we think you're coming back too quickly, despite the fact that was the medical advice at the time. So listen, just go away, get away from us for a while, go and spend a few months and, and really strengthen it up, and away you go. 
as it was, of course, I'd spent a year there, despite the fact that I was being paid almost nothing. I think it was like $8,000 or something. And I was living in a house owned by the club. That's how... That's the kind of sacrifice I was prepared to make in order to achieve what I wanted to achieve. Uh, there was three young players from the club who were being housed in that uh, house, and the club said to me, well, look, you're welcome to live there, and, you know, you're kind of the elder guy, and, of course, then we became lifelong friends. It was a wonderful uh, opportunity to meet some good people. Uh, so I went away, and I spent some time uh, with my family, and it was nice, actually, because from the age of... I left uh, Lismore at 15 just turning 16 and you know I was in my mid-20s now and I hadn't really been back up to Lismore to see my family too much you know you're just talking a couple of weeks a year that's the professional athlete's life and what happened when my father was going up to Kakadu uh, fishing for Barramundi which he did every year during those uh, during that decade and he would take his boat up there and he would go in you know a convoy of four-wheel drives and boats and carry on and he had all his equipment and he just absolutely loved it, camping out in Kakadu. And as it happened, just as I was leaving Adelaide, uh, one of the, the members of that caravan of people uh, had to pull out for some reason. And the opportunity was very timely, so I could then jump in the four-wheel drive with my father and spend a month driving from Lismore to Northern Territory, uh, up to Darwin, across to Kakadu, spend almost a month fishing every day for Barra with him, living in the tent, uh, cooking the fish every night, and just spending wonderful quality time with my father that I hadn't done for many, many years. After that, I came back to Lismore and I spent around another month just getting fit uh, to the degree that I did almost, despite the fact that I'm a pretty horrible swimmer, I did a, um, a triathlon, which is funny, my son's a triathlete today, but I did a triathlon every, once every two days, three times a week. It had nothing to do with the game, but I decided that I needed to be fit enough because now I was running out of time. So I really need to be the fittest person in this competition so that when I get there, when I achieve what I'm seeking, you know, I'll be ready. And so by the time I went back the following season, and I must say that the coach, Zoran Matic, was wonderful during that period because the club itself, the board, not, not um, uh, you know, quite understandably, I said, look, we think this guy's just injured all the time. It, despite the fact we're paying him largely nothing, um, you know, we don't think he's much value. And he said, look, I, I vouch for him. I think he's going to be fine. And so I went back down and I, and I was so fit that, uh, you know, and we're playing so well that within only a couple of months I had made the first squad for the Socceroos and I went and played my first game in Ghana. But to get there was 10 years of really solid work, learning, injuries, bit of heartache, everything that life is about. But the sweetness of pulling on that first jersey was really special because of the age that I was, I could really appreciate it and of course what I'd been through. You played 29 games for the Socceroos. What are the ones that stand out for you? Um, I, I appreciated deeply the experience of being in the Socceroos because I'd spent my early 20s watching, you know, and people that I knew, because, of course, we were at the AAS, so we had the most talented group of players in the country come together, and many of them went on to play for Australia at different levels, youth and senior. And so they were all my very close friends. I lived with them from time to time and, and uh, you know, of course, was constantly in contact, even if they weren't teammates. So they'd all gone on to play for Australia, and, you know, I'd watched that and I was just absolutely thrilled for them. But it, it perhaps drove 
you know, some of the uh, desire still that I had to get there. And so every game was really special. Some were bigger uh, than others in terms of pressure or importance, um, but all of them were highly memorable. The first one was special. Um, uh, that was against Ghana um, in Johannesburg, uh, South Africa. And that was a wonderful group to travel with, and that I also always enjoyed. I loved being with the group. I loved being, inverted commas, a socceroo. I loved the notion of playing for the country. It, it meant something very special to me then. It means something different today uh, because, uh, you know, as we age, you know, we start to understand that our notion of what Australia is and stands for that athletes quite often see um, in what is very much a um, often something of a um, narrow or blinkered existence and, and that's by necessity uh, because athletes spend so much time at the professional level having to just focus to be ready to play at a really high level athletically and psychologically. Uh, and so today it's different, but back then, um, you know, I would very proudly sing the national anthem. You know, I thought that, you know, the Australian flag, you know, represented all of us and that stood for something very special. Today, of course, I believe that what is special about Australia are our values uh, and the people and our multicultural nature uh, and what I believe we stand for, whereas I think some of those symbols, of course, from a lot of us are, are increasingly under question. Football's uh, almost uniquely multicultural in Australia. Was that one of the factors that uh, you loved about the, about the sport? I mean, we've, there's not many other sporting codes where you can point to multiple refu refugees playing at the elite level. Absolutely. And it's formed part of my worldview um, because there's so many wonderful elements that come through what is the global game. And that's the first point is that it gives us a sense of uh, a shared humanity, it gives us a sense of equality. You know, we played against, and you know, you mentioned refugees, but you know, in, in much of the advocacy space, in one of the human rights issues that I'm involved in, I look at, you know, Iranian, Kurdish, uh, Syrian or Sudanese or South Sudanese or um, uh, all of these refugees as people that we would have played football against. You know, and that's the point of sport. We came onto the field, we held up a banner that said no racism, that said we're all together. We shook hands, uh, you know, we talked about respect, we talked about equality. And then once you get off the field, you realise that that's not always the case. But in my view, it's something well worth fighting for. So football is a really important, empowering sport to teach us those lessons, undoubtedly. And what it gives you, of course, is the personal lessons. So we would often joke um, during my career and post and when I was at SBS and so on that our barbecues at home, for instance, or any family or friend gathering that we would have is like the United Nations because there's South American... You know, all of us come together through our love, passion and friendships in football, largely, um, from every continent, from every religion, uh, every colour, every language. Everyone is here. And we're all per perfectly equal. It doesn't matter what we do; no one cares. We just we just have this shared love uh, of what you know 
a lot of them would have played. Others are fans or perhaps work in broadcasting or other things, you know. So we would have Les here and, you know, we would have Dave Bashir is Lebanese, you know, and we would have David Zdrilla, uh, Zdrilic, uh, you know, who is Croatian. And we would have uh, African friends and, of course, uh, Francis Awaratifi. I'm just talking purely SBS here. Uh, Francis Awaratifi is Nigerian English. Um, so the backgrounds that we have is just incredibly diverse and just for us then it just becomes absolutely natural to see everyone as equal and that's one of the main values and areas of uh, advocacy in my life. Faz, I guess one of the manifestations of that is the different uh, national styles of, uh, of football play. Uh, for somebody who knows nothing about football whatsoever, uh, can you give us a, a sense as to what are the kind of broad differences in, in play style, you know, at least historically, uh, and where Australia fits in? Yeah, it's a, that's a lengthy discussion. So let's we'll stay here a couple of hours and I'll, I'll talk you through it. But it's a, yeah, it's a discussion that I really love. Um, if for people who don't know football so well, I guess an analogy might be perhaps they play tennis or perhaps they play golf, for instance. And so if you go and play golf with someone, and I don't really play tennis, but I imagine it's quite similar, you can see their personality coming out through their game. So someone who, uh, you know, just wants to smash the ball and go as quickly as possible and just get to the next hole, uh, you know, and if someone's holding them up, you know, they're going to whack the ball into them even though it's against the rules, you know, these types of behaviours that you see very often. <laughs> you know, that says something about the person. Like, you don't, you don't separate the person from, uh, you know, the golf stick, you know. One is holding the other. And so... Football is very much like that. You can't separate the people from the way they want to play. It also operates at game level. So if you look at my way below the 35s, every single player gravitates to a different area of the field and has a different approach to the game. Some are manic about winning at any cost. Some are there just to enjoy and be with the people, uh, you know, with their friends. Um, some want to just enjoy the purity of the game and just playing their position well and play in a very individualistic sense, which drives everyone crazy. Um, and, <laughs> and yet others um, can bring everyone together on the team. And it's not so much about even the way they play. They might not even be a particularly skilled player. In fact, they might be what we'd say one of the, one of the uh, worst on the team. But what they can do is they bring people together and they bring, get the best out of them. So our personalities actually come out through a sport, particularly I'd say through football because it's a game of such creativity and individualism within a team environment. You know, there are 10 players plus a goalkeeper and all of those people uh, can play their own role in, a very, um, in, in, in their own way. And so that occurs with countries. So... Every country plays slightly differently and they have different sensibilities and their culture is very much seen. Brazil is, of course, the most wonderful example and at their best, they are artistic. Uh, France has been like that for many years or was, was for many years and vacillates a little bit. When it comes to Australia, um, you know, what, what my view has been anyway, and we've talked about this uh, a depth in the football community, but because we play largely... Uh, ball to hand sports, um, you know, and I, and I include AFL in that, of course, along with the kicking, um, which are contact sports, which tend to be very direct, 
um, then that's been the way largely that we've also played football. And we've had to really challenge that over the last several decades and talk about how the best countries in the world play and how we might be able to adjust. Just on your point, Andrew, about multiculturalism, that's what's really interesting, is that the multicultural nature of Australia uh, is changing the fabric um, to the betterment of us all uh, of what Australia is every day. And uh, equally, it should then be reflected through the football that the country plays because we've got so many different cultures coming together to play under the Australian banner. So it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves in future. You need to do two things, of course. One is to play in a way that uh, reflects the best values of the country, in my view, uh, and the second is to play in a way that is going to succeed because ultimately you want to try and win a, a FIFA World Cup. I've heard you say before about uh, playing against Brazil, it's, it's like they were playing a different game. Uh, but given the number of uh, players moving around the world at the, mo at the moment, uh, you yourself have your, your period with Crystal Palace, um, is, are those national styles starting to ebb away? Is there uh, a, a national teams coming more towards a standardised way of, uh, of playing football? The, the middle group are, and the lower group are copying, but the top nations in the world... Um, still have a cultural idea of what it is they want to see. Uh, most of the top nations also are using their own coaches, where Australia's been one of the middling nations that has continued to largely import coaches from abroad who bring their own ideas. Um, however, so the tactical development of the game has similarities across the world, but the, the philosophical approach within that still shows a lot of cultural difference. So the Germans want to play in a certain way. The Dutch still, for, for a very long time, have, have required a certain level of artistry in their game. And this, you see, comes from the public, because ultimately the social licence of sport is from the public. So if the public don't watch the Socceroos playing, there's no Socceroos, or there's a less Socceroos. Um, you know, there's no money, there's no game, there's no economy. So ultimately it's the public... Uh, voting uh, by attending matches and, and you know watching videos and supporting digital campaigns and these things that actually makes the difference. So the public can put a huge amount of pressure on uh, coaches and governing bodies and, and the various people who try to strategize in relation to a philosophy of national teams and I think it's really interesting. We can't uh, leave your, uh, your time as a socceroo without uh, going to uh uh, your uh, the, the the game against Iran, in which Australia is uh, ultimately unsuccessful in qualifying for the World Cup. Uh, how how did you get through what must have been an incredibly devastating moment in your sporting career? With difficulty, um, you know, it sounds trite to say because the older we get, we we realise that you know it's far more important problems outside of sport. Sport has huge power to influence and, and you know, my, much of my life has been a, about helping it to, if not forcing at times it to do so and to stand up for social causes. Nevertheless, it still is just a pursuit uh, and there's far more important things. But, you know, when the country was going to go to the World Cup, you know, there was a record 
television audience. You know, we had a fabulous team who knew that we could not only get to France 98, but actually make an impact there. We had players playing at many top clubs around the world. We had a wonderful generation of players. And then, you know, we just messed it up uh, in 97 at the MCG, uh, despite leading 2-0. Uh, that's, that's tough to take, definitely. Um, but, you know, athletes are incredibly resilient people because the next week you're playing for your club uh, in a really important game at Selhurst Park uh, that is meaningful both for your own profession and for all those fans. So you've learned to move on really quickly. Only a month later, though, when we went to Saudi Arabia to play in the first ever Confederations Cup was when I realised how much it hit us all because when we got back together as a group for the first time, you know, there were tears and, uh, you know, the group had to really grieve in a way because no one in our lives could truly understand what it is that we'd been through. It's difficult to talk to your family about what that meant, being out on that field. So it took some time, uh, nevertheless. The reality is that the game was still a mess back then, uh, and making that World Cup actually would have only entrenched some of the uh, institutional issues that the game had, and which we were later able to, well, um, at least in part, overcome. How do you regard the uh, the bodies responsible for uh, for football globally? I mean, it, if you look at the succession of scandals that we've seen over the, uh, the over the last couple of decades, it's it's hard to think of another sport whose major sporting body has had so many uh, corruption corruption scandals as uh, as football. Uh, how does that how does that filter down to the grassroots of the sport? I think it. Depends on each country. Uh, so different countries have different ethical levels, different ways that they treat the sport, uh, and different views of how it should be run. Uh, at international, global level, though, it's been horrible really forever, uh, and in many respects, it remains that way. Um, that is uh, because it's a bit Andrew really like the uh, the current political system you know, that we have in Australia in some respects. Easy on. I think there's a bit less corruption in the federal parliament than FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I meant was in order to um, uh, excel within politics largely, you know, you have to be very skilled at playing what is the game of the day, if you like. Mm. And that means that you have to compromise on a lot of aspects um, in order to survive within a framework uh, football's, as you say, far worse, uh, but that's what it happens. It attracts to the top level of governance of the game the wrong people. One of the big disappointments globally has been the position of the players. So I'm a former chairman of our own players union in Australia, for example, and our players union in Australia, pound for pound, is one of the best in the world, and that's because it's always held the game accountable. It, it has always advocated for higher levels of governance, whereas at a global level, players have, I think, been satiated by the growth in um, commercial outcomes for all of them, you know, huge transfer fees, huge amounts of money, huge salaries all around the world, rather than seeing themselves as uh, custodians of the ethics and the future of the game and have been far too reticent to hold the game accountable. For instance, 
when Sepp Blatter and all his cronies uh, at FIFA were uh, under pressure by the media and subsequently under investigation by FBI, and many of them are in jail now, and of course Blatter is, is I think, has an eight-year ban. Right throughout that time, there were very few player organisations around the world who said anything, who spoke up. It took governance organisations, Transparency International, um, you know, even human rights organisations in the last decade have held the game accountable, but the players itself have been too reluctant to do so, and that's something that I think they should be much stronger on and that I hope will change in future. In terms of holding people accountable, uh, in your two decades at SBS, uh, you set about pioneering a somewhat different style of, uh, of interviewing. Uh, I think many people uh, uh, think back uh, fondly or, uh, to your uh, 2006 interview with Ange Postacoglu in which you put him under a degree of pressure that he was clearly not anticipating. Uh, why is it important to, uh, to hold coaches to account in that way? And, and do you think uh, the quality of interviewing uh, of, uh, of, of sports people and sports coaches has improved over your time? Mm. Uh, has it improved? Um, uh, I think in our game um, it's changed and um, many interviews, including um, the one with Ange, I think played a part in changing that uh, because prior to that um, you know, the questions of national coaches and others in positions of importance and authority really weren't being asked. You know, you have to understand, I think, that football was, is, is quite a small game at the top level, uh, funnily enough, despite the fact that, you know, we've got almost two million people playing. Uh, but it's quite a small community and so it's difficult to challenge, um, you know, entrenched institutions. It's the same in politics, you know, and for people outside in civil society. It's not easy to challenge um, um, orthodoxy, it's not easy to challenge you know, the, the paradigms of the day and it's certainly not easy to challenge a whole system of authority and power and Australian football as a group including coaches, don't forget around that time also Soccer Australia as it was or just prior to that had also been um, you know, placed under a great deal of pressure, and rightly so, uh, was necessary, in my view, to move the game forward. Um, was never easy, but it was uh, deeply necessary. Today, I'm delighted to see that our coaches have not only adapted themselves to questioning and, and uh, are very capable, if you like, media performers today, they also uh, are at a far higher level. So, you know, in, the, in recent decades, we've been able to um, completely overhaul all of the coaching methodology and the level of professionalism of our coaches today, including, um, you know, quite a few, including Graham Arnold, the current Socceroos coach, or Ange, the former Socceroos coach, many others of whom, you know, I had, I had interviews uh, throughout that period, uh, or if you like, um, you know, locked horns with at various times. Uh, all have, are doing exceptionally well now and that's really the most beautiful thing. You know, it was a period where all of the game needed to be challenged. Now we've got some issues broadly, but our coaches are doing fabulously well. Graham's going well. We've got Kevin Muscat now across in Belgium, of course. He started the season beautifully, beat, beat the champions. You've got Ange with a championship in Japan. Uh, Joe Montemuro is a young coach who's the, the women's coach of Arsenal. And all of these coaches have come through... 
uh, you know, what is a much more robust and high-level system now. So that's one of the beautiful things. How tough should uh, commentators be on coaches? Uh, you famously called on Pim Verbeek to step down. Uh, do you think that's, uh, that's appropriate? Do we, uh, do we not do it enough? Do we do it too much? Yeah, actually what happened is I, what I called for was to, for him to be given some support uh, in terms of the way the team was A, going to be selected and B, was going to approach the game. You know, that's another discussion that, um, you know, had a big impact because... I'm not sure you just called, called for him to, uh, to, to get support, didn't you? I think you, uh, uh, you did, you did uh, call, call for his head at one point. No, actually, what I said was that we should have some former captains around the team who are able to carry forward the culture and the way of playing over a period of time and that they should have some influence on the team. Uh, and I said that by half-time I would have sacked him. Nevertheless, I didn't call for him to be sacked. What I said is uh, that we need people, particularly captains of the country, who know how we should play and that the approach that we took in the game against Germany in 2010 was inappropriate in a number of ways. Uh, and that, in fact, the coach of, of the Australian national team shouldn't be able to take that approach shouldn't be able to take what was an incredibly negative approach to a really important game, uh, and I still believe that today. Mm, mm. Yeah, I would have thought if I... Uh, I, I, said, I said that uh, I would have sacked someone that that uh, uh, was, uh, was equated to calling for, their, the, calling for their head, but I can understand the, uh, the, the distinction you're making there. And, and that also came down to a national style question too, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, no, and, and I'd say again, it doesn't. If I wanted him to be sacked, I would have said he should be sacked immediately. Um, but, um, yeah, the national style question is a really, really important one. And, and so an interesting analogy is uh, the Wallabies. And I would often say to rugby friends of mine, of whom I have many, uh, that the old Wallabies, when uh, Campisi and Jason Little and uh, Tim Horan and all of these guys were playing, were wonderful to watch and I recall that era very well. Perhaps there's a bit of nostalgia because I was quite um, young at the time but I remember them playing this kind of swashbuckling attacking style of rugby that I felt really represented me as an Australian and certainly resonated with the public and I remember going out to watch them in some internationals when I was kind of a young a young socceroo or just coming around that time uh, that you know, watching them was was wonderful. They would go out to the ANZ Stadium and it would be full and, you know, Australians were really uh, on board with the way they were playing. Subsequently, then, they changed their style completely because they seemed to believe that uh, a different style would be more effective. Um, I think other countries who were being successful around the world had were playing a different style, which which I would have characterised as being more negative. And Australia decided that, you know, we needed to stay up, I guess, with the best or whatever the, whatever the decision was. And it's interesting because, um, you know, it took us some, quite some years, uh, you know, to get back to our best. And that's similar, I think, in many ways to football. And so football has always been struggling with this question of, uh, you know, how is it that we should play in order to both be successful and to uh, succeed on the domestic stage? That means, you know, intoxicating Australians with the, you know, a love of the game, a love of watching the Socceroos and Matildas uh, and, 
and which you know creates, of course, the commercial success for the game that allows you to invest in youth development, bringing through another generation. So it's an ongoing discussion because, of course, coaches, um, you know, are, are are paid to, in many respects, are paid to succeed game by game or to just qualify for a World Cup. And that's certainly been the case here in Australia, whereas, you know, in places like Holland, for instance, there's a very clear uh, expectation on the coach that they play in a certain way because they believe that that way is A, most effective, and B, is going to be successful for them. And, of course, they're, they're a country who produced a huge amount of players and done very well on the international stage with several, um, in fact, three uh, World Cup finals. So it's, a, it's an ongoing debate, I think, across sport, and certainly in football it's one that, uh, you know, will we'll continue in Australia. In, at the end of 2018, a uh, Bahraini-Australian, uh, Hakeem Al-Arabi, uh, was uh, put, uh, locked up in a Thai jail as a result of uh, an attempt by Bahrain to get him back. Um, you very quickly found yourself uh, involved in, uh, in standing up for Hakeem. Um, how did you get involved? Oh, it came to my attention, I think, through a number of uh, ways, friends and others, uh, who sent me texts to say, look, have you seen this? You know, given that I was with Amnesty as a refugee ambassador and was working in human rights space quite a bit, you know, it was natural that people, you know, um, reasonably quickly came to me and said, look, is there something that you can do here? The Players' Union, uh, which you know I've had a 25-year association with, they were approached by uh, Hakim's club, Pasco Vale, who are wonderful people. They tried to approach, they say, uh, Football Victoria and then particularly Football Federation Australia and said they didn't get too far. So they went to the Players' Union and the Players' Union said, of course, they're going to do something, and they called me. So I spent a little bit of time learning you know, about what the issue was, and particularly around Bahrain and the history of what had occurred and what had happened to Hakim, and pretty quickly came to realise that he was in deep trouble. One of the reasons which is because I understand football governance and football politics very well, and I knew that the game wasn't going to help him. So how long did it take before you were on a plane to Thailand? So that was a few weeks. Uh, I started to advocate a little bit and, and call on people to help and start to build support publicly and get the story out. The players also, through our Players Association, started to do a really great job. And so particularly the W League players, Sam Kerr, uh, was, I think, captain of Perth Glory and they might have been playing Sydney FC in the W League. I remember one of those early weekends and they wore uh, armbands uh, to highlight uh, the issue. And so we started to be able to build some public awareness of the issue. But throughout that period, I met Hakim's wife. I also met a range of the NGOs and human rights organisations who were trying to help him. And it quickly became clear that there was no coordination, that people were crossing over each other, uh, and that we had no real level of accurate information. There was some misunderstandings about court dates or potential court dates, uh, there was a lack of information about the the claims that Bahrain were, were making uh, and a range of other things. And so eventually I decided that the only way to really get that accurate information and to get a better understanding of Hakim was to go to Bangkok. 
And you really put in place a, a full court press. I mean, you're doing media conferences. You took a petition with 50,000 signatures to Switzerland. Uh, you, uh, you were calling for football sanctions to be imposed not only on Bahrain but also on Thailand. Uh, must have been an exhausting uh, couple of months for you. Oh, it was huge. A uh, few months, yeah. It was really, really intense. Uh, I'd never experienced anything like that previously. Uh, and so one of the kind of uh, emotional pressures was that we really were just making it up as we went along. Well, certainly I was. Uh, every day was different. Every day was a different pressure point. Every day Bahrain would respond. Thailand would do something different. The Australian government would say something different. Uh, and so this sense of foreboding that he could be returned any moment, uh, my relationship with his wife, understanding the stress that she was under, uh, which included financial and emotional and, uh, you know, everyone around Hakeem, of course, was an absolute mess and I was increasingly meeting them, getting to know them and they were increasingly relying on me to make it happen. All of that meant that it was just incredibly emotionally draining. But... At the same time, there was a real um, intensity of purpose that we don't often have in life. That is, when someone's actual life is on the line, uh, you know, there's only one thing to do, and that is to just go all in and do everything possible. And in some ways, it's liberating because you don't have to make uh, as many judgments of, of balancing you know, one thing against another. Uh, and once I decided to take the risk to go, uh, then from there, there was no turning back. And it was, I think, extraordinarily exciting for, uh, for all Australians when uh, Hakeem finally landed on the 12th of February 2019. I remember you brought him down to Ca Canberra not long afterwards. We had the, uh, the, the privilege of meeting him. What did you take out of the whole experience? How did it change you and, and make you... A better person. It gave me a sense of what people are capable of when they band together, when they collectivise, and that the public could, in fact, put so much pressure on well, three governments, uh, a military junta and two royal families, that they could be pressured to release, uh, you know, one young kid uh, who otherwise would have meant nothing to anyone, or. To, to you know, a very limited number of people, if you like. So once we had got the news out about Hakeem and built the story to such a degree, it gave me an insight into social change, into uh, the good will and, and the good heart of so many people, both in Australia and around the world, gave me a sense of, uh, you know, if you tell the story well and if we humanise people like Hakeem or others that you know, people will be moved and they will take their own personal risk to help and that's important because we've got so many people in Australia and around the world who need help and there's so many other issues for people to be concerned about right now and always. So that's always a challenge but you know, it, it brought a lot of hope and optimism again that you know, people are inherently good and they will step forward and help others when provided the opportunity and if the t story is told honestly and fairly. And sadly, that's not always the way today, as we see, you know, in the context of asylum seekers and refugees within the Australian context. Yes, yeah. Craig, when uh, COVID-19 hit, you uh, did something 
pretty impressive. Uh, about two-thirds of Australian volunteers had to cut back on volunteering, particularly those who are older. Uh, a whole lot of sporting competitions were cancelled and, and you saw this, uh, this opportunity to turn sports people into, uh, into volunteers uh, to beef up the volunteering activity of, uh, of our local sports people. How did Play for Lives come about and, uh, and what did it achieve? It came about simply from what you've said, that is sport was clearly going to close down and we were all going to be idle at least from our sporting commitments and it came a little bit from the Hakeem campaign and a little bit from my life as a player and my life uh, with the Players Association in the sense that you know my position on sport became and is that we have incredible power to shape a social good and to shape society and sport unlike many aspects of civil society largely refuses to do so and it likes to use the Olympic uh, movement is not alone in this but is is right at the forefront it likes to use the concept of being political as a line over which it won't cross when it feels uncomfortable advocating for what are overwhelmingly and usually just basic human rights of people. And the refugees and asylum seekers in Australia is a really great example. You know, as you are well aware, uh, you know, ref asylum seekers have rights under international law, human rights, uh, and, therefore, and those are objective. And therefore, my view is that sport should be upholding the human rights for everyone because that's what it's about. It's about equality. It's about opportunity. And not just opportunity to play, but opportunity to, to live, opportunity to eat, opportunity to, to um, have safe housing and other things. That sport, that's perfectly aligned with sport's reason for being and, and with its purported values. But too often, if a particular government of the day in a particular country feels uncomfortable with these, some, of, some of these issues, then sport backs away from them usually almost completely. And so with that in mind, it was a wonderful opportunity to bring sport closer to some aspects of society who need our help as a sporting industry. Uh, and that meant every vulnerable community who I knew already were crying out for assistance, for volunteers, all of the NGOs and charities. It wasn't just about the charities, it was far more about the people they were helping. And what I wanted to do was encourage sport to come and meet these communities. For instance, you know, with our volunteering at Addison Road Community Centre in Marrickville, among others, um, you know, the Exodus Foundation with Reverend Bill Cruz and many others here in Sydney. But that particular one, uh, uh, is packing food hampers for many vulnerable communities, whether it's the homeless or it's, um, for instance, uh, sex workers who, of course, at that time were out of work, had no financial support and needed food. Uh, refugees and asylum seekers, uh, international students. It was an opportunity for sport people and clubs and practitioners to be at the coalface uh, right at that line which where we were stepping into vulnerable communities who've been vulnerable for a very long time. It's just that COVID exacerbated the inequities that they were facing. And so that was largely behind Play for Lives, was, an, was a chance to say, all right, we're not going to be playing here, so we've got a significant amount of time on our hands to volunteer, and let's all step up and apply the time that we were going to train and play 
to people in need, to put sport at the service of Australian society, which is also part of its social responsibility, not just for sport to assist itself or provide opportunities or equality within our, you know, within our boundaries, but actually to advocate for equality outside our boundaries. And therefore, Play for Lives was really effective in doing that. And so we've had many um, uh, initiatives all around the country where people have just taken leadership and, and got in touch with their local charities, got their clubs or their teammates or their association on board and started volunteering and helping people through COVID. It's been wonderful. Yes, and you've spoken so articulately about uh, the need for uh, sporting clubs to connect as strongly as possible to their local communities and the hope that that flows out of this, which I think is terrific. Craig, let me uh, wrap up by uh, asking you a couple of questions I ask all my guests. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I would say uh, chase what you think is your purpose, chase what you think is your mission, and don't be swayed by that. And so, if, you know, whatever that means... Uh, and that's what I find myself doing today, but I could have done in many respects much earlier. That is, don't worry about extraneous things. Decide what it is that you want to do with your life that's going to help people uh, and just attack it straight away. Well, what is your mission now? You've just uh, finished up with SBS. What's the, what's the mission? What I'm seeking to do is to help Australia and the world in, in any way that I can, to um, create more equality in particular, to create a fairer world for us all, uh, and a, a livable planet as well, which would be helpful. Uh, so the best way I can do that right now is through sport, and so I'm particularly focused on bringing sport closer, closer to social issues, uh, upholding human rights in sport as well. You know, we do have some human rights policies, FIFA's a great example, but adherence to those policies is lacking. Uh, and I believe that if human rights in global sport are upheld in a really substantive way, that means that we speak up for the Uyghurs. That means that sport's comfortable um, speaking up for refugees uh, all around the world. doesn't matter where that is. If we're comfortable speaking up for gender equality as we are in racial equality, but actually doing it in a substantive way, then we can make a huge positive contribution to the world instead of largely standing on the sidelines. So at the moment, that's the main focus. But in any way that I can contribute to people in society here and around the world uh, who don't have what I have, who have less opportunity, who have institutional disadvantage or racism or any other form of inequality, religious or otherwise, whether they're attacked, um, you know, all of those people, if I can help them, I'll do so. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that just stepping forward in sport and helping social programs was going to make the change that was necessary, was going to create a better world. And I know now that that's not the case, that sport actually has to do more, that sport is a, a powerful, influential social institution that has an obligation to step forward on broader social issues. And I'm delighted to see that trend happening now, largely driven by professional athletes around the world who are now stepping up on you know, Black Lives Matter, Indigenous Lives Matter, on racial equality and gender equality in particular. And I think that's a wonderful trend. So sport needs to do more and to accept its broader social responsibility. It can't just exist within its narrow boundaries and refuse to get involved in issues that affect a broader society, for instance, climate, agenda, or, or any other issue. When are you most happy? I'm most happy with a family and friends, uh, and when I'm around 
you know, the shared passion of football with people who uh, have somehow come into my, um, into my universe and they tend to be people who are socially minded, uh, who also love the game like I, but who believe in its values and, and are always prepared to extend a hand for others. They're the people that I tend to have in my life. And when I'm around them and, and my beautiful children and my wife, then that's when I'm happy. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? I'm fortunate in my own social existence that I have wonderful people in my life. I've got an amazing family and that includes extended family and so on. So, you know, I recognise the position that I'm in is, uh, is something that a lot of people aren't able to enjoy for a whole range of reasons. And so I'm, I just have you know, a huge amount of gratitude every day and my main focus is trying to help those people to have what it is that I've been able to have in my life. Do you have any guilty pleasures or are you uh, vice-free? Uh, I do like a wine or two, definitely. Uh, and uh, I enjoy, particularly with friends, uh, you know, a couple of bottles of Pinot Noir, um, you know, regularly. Uh, so I'm not sure where the current research is at on the health benefits of that, but I uh, like to tell myself that it's doing good for my heart. I certainly hope that's the case. <laughs> if it is doing good for your heart, it can't be a guilty pleasure. Just, just, just saying. Uh, and finally, uh, Foz, uh, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think the whole game of football has been uh, something that's shaped my views in many ways, both positively and negatively. I've seen from the inside the worst of human nature, the worst of governance of global sports, which is ethics at, at their most putrid. And at the same time in sport, I've seen the most glorious people, the most incredible values. I've seen immense self-sacrifice. Uh, and people giving to others every day. I work with a range of social programs through sport where I meet the, the best human beings that I know. Uh, so through the sport of football, I've met people from all around the world of all type, shape, sizes, uh, views, religions, nationalities and races, and I've seen the best and worst of humanity. And that's put me in a position where I believe that people are inherently good uh, and I believe that if enough good people get together, uh, extraordinary things can happen. Craig Foster, footballer, commentator and human rights agitator, thanks so much for taking the time to join us in the Good Life podcast today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Kurt Fernley, Heather Garriock and Rob DeCastella. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.